If you've got your Bibles, turn to the book of Nehemiah this morning just for a few minutes. In Nehemiah chapter 4. Now, if um, you haven't been in the book of Nehemiah recently or maybe you haven't read it, one of the key pieces to this story is that it's a story of rebuilding a wall that was broken down around Jerusalem. And one of the details of that story was the opposition that took place in building that wall. And this this first text here just is kind of a snapshot, and there's this principle in here that we want to go after here this morning. So Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning with verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart, and when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs of the Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead, and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much trouble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and they will kill them and put an end to the work. Now, here's the reality of this text. For these people that were working on the wall, they lost focus. And actually what took place even maybe farther than that, they lost the understanding of why they were working on the wall. See, with the opposition, they lost the vision of what they were working for. And and as a result, they were overcome by fatigue, frustration, and, and we even see fear that was set in with these people. Folks, this is just 26 days into the project. And the vision had been lost of what they were working toward. Now, I don't know if you know this term, but many people title this concept of losing a vision the Nehemiah principle. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. That just a short period of time that people can lose focus on why they're doing what they're doing. But as a leader, Nehemiah, he had some work to do. Now, it wasn't physical work, but here's what he had to do. He had to restate the vision, and he had to call them back as to why they were rebuilding this wall. Look at the chapter 4, verse 14. Jump ahead to 14. After I looked things over, I stood up. This is Nehemiah speaking. And said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. Now this phrase, fight for your families, your sons, daughters, your homes, he's not talking, they weren't even in a fight yet. So he's not talking about the immediate sense, but... Nehemiah understood that there was something that could be lost if they lost the vision. And it was the spiritual faith and the, and the, the trustworthiness looking at God. They were going to shrink back and it would impact the families, their families, as the families needed to move forward in their faith. See, it really was about the preservation of the Jewish faith. 
and passing it down even to the sons and their daughters, not allowing the enemies to steal it from them. Now this morning, I was debating whether I wanted to share a secret with you, and I I talked about this with Deanna last night, and, and I decided it was really the right thing to do. And this passage fits with my little secret. Here's the secret. For many pastors who've been in ministry for a number of years, we have come to dislike the summer months. <laughs> Listen, I, I love the heat. I love the weather. I'm a warm person guy. But I'll be honest with you, with summer brings frustration when it comes to church ministry. Now, I work hard to let it go. I, I, I do have to do that. But the fact is that many pastors and full-time church staff, they would agree with this frustration. But the frustration goes like this. On the average, if you ask Christians, what is summer for? Here seems to be the answer. Summer is about fun, vacation, kids stuff, family outings. And for students, it's not thinking about school And for teachers, it's not thinking about school. For you that are having to rethink about school now, (laughs) my daughter's already started teaching here. But if you talk to pastors around this issue, and many of them won't voice it, they just kind of, they won't be bold enough to say it, but a church can lose its vision of why we exist over a summer. Matter of fact, I talked to a pastor in the community this week on Wednesday. And I just threw out there, hey, how's it going for the summer? And what flowed immediately out of his lips was frustration about the summer. But here's the deal. I think I have to admit, personally, I can get distracted and lose the vision of why we do church. See, looking back at Nehemiah, it took 26 days for them to lose the vision of why they were working on that wall. If you're following along in the notes, the question I'll throw out at you, how long does it take to lose a vision of why we exist as a church? 26 days for the Israelites to forget their vision about building the wall. But how long does it take to forget about our purpose as a group of people that calls themselves a church? Now understand, the the obstacles to Israel, I think, were different than ours. They had literal enemies at the time stalking them, so they had lots of fear from that. But for us, do you realize that summer, if we counted from June 1st to September 7th this year, that's the length this, this summer, we have 98 days of summer. See, in those 98 days, what are the obstacles where we can lose the vision of why church exists? Could it be fun? Could it be vacations? Could it be the cabin? Could it be my boat that's parked down on my dock? Could that be it? Could it be my grandkids and i got to spend time with the grandkids, you know, because that's what good fathers, grandfathers do. See, I I figure that I could have lost our vision of why church at least three times this summer. Folks, sometimes I think I lose the vision on a Sunday morning of why I even get up here. 
And I assume that some of you, as you think back to even this last two and a half, three months, have we lost a vision, or at least in part, our vision together in Christ, making Him known. See, today is really calling us back to this vision. Now, the first year that I started here, with the Elder Board, we together looked at some of the written statements that we had of why, in terms of what was communicated about why we exist as a church. And a number of years ago, the, the church, this is before I came, actually adopted some symbols in sense of the pathway of why we exist. And those are painted on the wall out there. If you've forgotten them, maybe you don't notice them anymore when you come into the church. But there's four B's that are painted on the wall there. And a few years ago, we created a, a picture that kind of gives a process, and that's on the screen here. We, we kind of put them in a baseball diamond. And the baseball diamond gives a process of those elements that are needed to fulfill the purpose of our church together in Christ making him known. The words that were chosen there going head in the first base, that issue of belonging. See, we exist because we're called to belong to Christ and we're supposed to be belonging to each other. And then we head towards second base. We're called to believe God and we, we are called to believe his word. And you go out second to third and, and all of a sudden the call in our lives to becoming like Christ. As we pursue Christ, we become people who love him and when we love him, we respond by becoming like him. But it shouldn't even stop there. As we head toward home, all of a sudden this idea is about bringing. That we bring Christ to the world and we want to bring others to a deeper love with him and responding to him. Now, i, I got to stop here just a second. And, and i got to point something out here. If, if you're a parent or even if you're a middle school student or a high school student, this diagram isn't only for old people like your parents and myself, okay? This applies to a youth ministry as well. See, as a, as a youth, as youth, if you're a youth here today, do you understand the importance of belonging to a group of friends who are seeking Christ together in community? Is that important to you? And I can tell you this, it will make a difference as to whether you're going to follow God for the long haul or whether you're going to follow God for a year or two. See, as a student, are you embracing the truths of who God is and his word? Is he becoming trustworthy to you? Because if you don't embrace the truth of the Jesus of the scriptures, by default, you're going to fall into a trap that the majority of students are in right now where they say this, truth is relative. Everybody can do what they want to do. Everything's right. It's just whatever you want. But students, are you heading toward third as well? understanding that as you learn to grow in who he is, you become like him, you're going to be changed, and other students will see that. And students heading home is for you as well. Do you know that you're invited into a mission in that relationship with Christ, and Christ wants you to be in that, to help another person know him, love him, and grow in him. See, this isn't reserved for adults. 
But if we never get involved with God, with Christ in such a way, we're going to miss out. And for students, I'll tell you what, there's a sheer joy as you learn to become a person who's bringing others to faith. Can I throw an application question for families here that have kids in youth and children? Let me just throw this on the screen. It's not in the notes. Which bee is the family doing best on? And, and which is the one that needs to be some energy given toward? Maybe this applies to all of us. Where's the work that's needed? But let me go back to this Nehemiah principle. We're coming into the fall, which means for church, program begins and ministries begin. And you know as a church that fall represents the startup of many, many things. If you've been in a church for years, it's just the way it is. But when you ask the question, why? Why do we begin things? Why do we start these programs? Is it because we've always done it? Or maybe ministry literally has become a tradition. That's all we, we always do it this way before. And my response is, you know, I hope not. But folks, this is a call for us to remember, why church? Why do we exist? See, there are a couple of key principles and passages that we must center on even if we're going to fulfill those four Bs. There's a couple texts of why we have a Sunday school, why we gather students together in the fall. Let me put up back up the baseball diamond. Is it the next one there? Look at the pitcher's mound there a second. Do you realize that in that pitcher's mound there, the one that throws the pitch, there are two doctrinal pieces there that are absolutely critical. They're kind of small. If you got to squint, i got to squint to read them. But the great commandment and the great commission are at the heart of why we exist as a church. And I want to read you from Matthew 22, the great commandment again. It starts out in 22, verse 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Look at verse 40. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. See, understand that this book, the Bible reveals the heart of God. It reveals the mission of God. And Jesus says that all of the scripture, now he would have been referring to the Old Testament, but I would think that he would also say the new, is pointed, hangs, is built on the first two commandments of loving God and loving other people. To love God with our hearts and our souls and our minds. See, whether you're young or whether you're old, we come to church and we have ministries, but it is to be rooted in a love relationship with God. That's where it begins. That's the foundation of any church. That's the call of any church. But again, I have to remind you that we lose that. We forget it. 
And, and Nehemiah pointed that out. But, but let me kind of push it a step farther. We talked about the wall. Let me put up another picture. Do we realize at time that this is what keeps us from God? The barrier of sin. Now, again, when you, you know, there's a lot of politics going on. One of the assumptions out there that I, I just, every time I hear this, I cringe where people go, everybody's God's children. Well, I suppose in one sense that's true because he created everybody. But in another sense, that is not true. Because there is a barrier between people and God unless something happens. And on one side of the wall, we are not really God's children. On the other side of the wall, when we get over the sin issue, we become God's children. Let me put another picture on the door just to remind you of this, is that the God, the Father, he carved out a door to invite people into a relationship to become a real child of God. And as we walk through that door, which is titled the cross, which is titled Jesus, all of a sudden we come into the other side and we are his children. We are his, we have a new identity. But here's where i got to push it farther. As we walk through that door, it's not just to sit down and go, wow, I'm God's child. He goes, no, Ken, now I'm calling you to a new mission as well. Just don't sit on the chair. I want you to go. And I want you to go because I have given the great commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all people, teaching them to obey. See, but we can forget that we are called to be helping people who are far from God. We grab those people and we help them and we take them to meet Jesus and then even go farther, we help them to fall in love with Jesus and respond to him and love him and serve him and be a part of the kingdom of God. That's what it means to make disciples. See, we can forget that even as a church over a few weeks. We're called to make disciples. But here's where i got to clarify this morning. A couple aspects here. And I don't know if you've thought of it in these terms. There's really two parts to disciple making. For your notes, I'll say, say it this way. The first aspect is this. It's called individual discipleship. And this is kind of like one-on-one type thing, is this aspect where we are to help other Christians who need to grow. Parents. If you're a parent here this morning, you are the primary discipler of your children individually. That is the call on your life. And I would remind you, don't just settle for nice Christian kids. Help your kids become disciplers where they turn around and disciple other kids. Matter of fact, I want to show you an illustration of this, of individual disciple making. 2 Timothy The whole book is an example, but look at it, 2 Timothy 1, 1 and 2. Paul, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. And then he writes this intimate letter to his friend, someone he cherishes. Look at, to Timothy, my beloved child. Timothy would have been pretty young, probably in his 20s, maybe 30s, who knows. And he says this, 
grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. He is speaking directly to a young man that he loves and Paul has a purpose in mind in this discipling relationship. Look at 2 Timothy, next chapter, 1 and 2 again. You then, my child, he's speaking to Timothy here, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me, the teaching that I've given to you. In the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. See, Paul loved this young man intimately and he felt compelled to walk with him and to help him grow in his faith, but it didn't just stop there growing in his faith. He wanted Timothy to take somebody else and to grow in their faith as well. This is about multiplication of discipleship. But I think the challenge is, do we see that even as a privilege, as an honor to be able to do that, to come alongside of people? And the reality is when we learn to individually disciple people, God changes us just as much in that process. See, in this text, Paul wanted him to pass on what he was learning. He wanted Timothy to become that disciple who would disciple others. But let me ask you a question here. How old should one be before one begins to learn how to individually disciple people? You know, as I pondered that, I think it can go all the way down to at least middle school. I think sixth, seventh grade, you can start, a young person can start to do that. Do we believe that? Parents, do you believe that? But let me switch to another aspect here. Beyond personal, there, there's number two there, there's corporate discipleship, and we have to acknowledge that. And, and this is about the discipleship that takes place within the body of Christ. It takes place when the church family gathers together. And, and look at a passage here from Galatians 5.13. Remember, Paul here is writing to a church, that the church is in Galatia. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, the book of Galatians is about freedom, as you know, if you've read it recently. And as, see, as we become united in Christ, we are a group of people that have been set free from the bondage of sin. But let me give you an application. That first bullet for your notes, I said this, we are now set free to serve one another. That's very pointed, that verse. But this verse is not speaking about, I'm here to serve my family, I'm here to serve my wife. I know I need to serve my wife. Okay, she tells me that. No, she doesn't. <laughs> We're called to serve within the body of Christ. And folks, the church cannot have an effective corporate discipleship unless people are willing to serve. That's just the way it is. And I think, I'm not going to dissect this verse, but if you were to go back to this passage here, we're not going to go there, but if you start to unpack that a bit, see, he's connecting the ability to serve as the opposite of the flesh, the old nature, that's ruled by selfishness. So frankly, if a church isn't unwilling to serve, I think what he would say, this would be fair, is you're rooted in the flesh, in, in the old ways. 
But let, let me point out another aspect here, and it comes from 1 Corinthians 12. As you know, 1 Corinthians, maybe you don't, but chapter 11, he's dealing with the challenges of worship and the Lord's Supper. There was a lot of contention in the church at Corinth. But in chapter 12, he begins to, to broaden it in the understanding, and I would say corporate discipleship. This applies deeply to it. See, he uses an analogy of the physical body in the terms of the way a church is called to function in the role of corporate discipleship. And look how it reads here. I'm going to read the New Living here this morning. Verse, chapter 12, verse 12. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up of the whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. But we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. But if the foot says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, that does not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? See, the whole body, if the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Or if the whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if we only had one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can never say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. A critical point. And for your notes, I said it this way. Corporate discipleship is most effective when each person finds their place to serve. There's just no getting around this. If the body doesn't step up and serve in corporate discipleship, there is a lacking that's going to go on. It takes Discipleship takes gifts and talents and abilities in order for the corporate discipleship to move forward. See, I, I think there's this misconception on discipleship. We tend to think of, well, I'm, just do this program, find the people, and I go, no. People disciple people. In every ministry, every program, recognize we need people to help disciple people no matter what kind of style that we run in terms of ministry. We need people. We need parts of the body working together. Deanna and I, we lived in Vancouver, as many of us have shared a number of times. And uh, out, we were out there for about 11 years, and, and we ended up moving one time. We sold our house, and we moved to another part of town. And in that, we had to find a new church. And the church that we chose was uh, walked in there on a Sunday, and it was about 40 people total. Um, turns out, we ended up meeting with the pastor, and, and the church had had a split. Both sides left, okay? They were well over 200 people 
And what remained was a few families. And the Free Church actually had sent this pastor up. His name was Keith Lundberg, and he sent him up to try to salvage, to see if the church would, would keep the doors open, frankly. They didn't have a, a free church in proper Vancouver, which is a good-sized community, 60,000. But we started attending, and I'll have to admit, looking back there, I'm not sure why at times, because they had little to offer. They had no youth ministry. Andy was in seventh grade. They had limited children's ministries. But the interesting thing and the dynamic there as we look back is that God began to bring people to the church and he brought people with a mindset of going, can we serve? Five years later, when we were leaving, the church had grown to about 240 people, had two services. And as we look back, I could say this, we experienced a very good corporate discipleship experience. It was good. My first experience of being on an elder board took place at First Free of Vancouver, Washington. And we learned much. We're in our early 30s as we started that church. But there was a principle that we discovered there as we just tried to jump in and serve the body there. And that third bullet for you is this principle. God uses serving each other to move us to become like Christ. See, the church needs hands and ears and toes and little fingers to build each other up. And when the finger doesn't serve, it hurts. But there's something, a dynamic here, folks. When the finger serves, it helps and it begins to change and God changes that finger so it becomes even more important. Now, one of the pieces that I'll, I'll throw one more piece of this story in. Back then, the church that we had attended previously, they had lost their vision to love God and to love people and to make disciples. There was a lot of conflict that was going on, and many people were getting wounded in that church. And being young, and we experienced some of that conflict, and we kind of wonder, okay, why didn't we just check out of the church back then and just stop going to church? But something happened, and we have to attribute it to God, that we jumped in and we just began to serve at first free. But the pastor and his wife, Keith and Marilyn, they helped create an atmosphere of corporate discipleship and they love people and it changed us. And looking back, God used it profoundly because God was changing us. He gave us some healing as we came out of that previous church. As a matter of fact, I remember Keith challenged me in a very subtle way. He said, Ken, don't become a victim to a negative church experience. And he talked through issues around that. But he took me under his wing and he taught me what a good elder looks like. And that church experience actually reinforced my desire to work within a church full time. I was in my early 30s. Keith was in his probably early 60s. And it was there that he kind of affirmed my call and my desire to, to seek ministry as a vocation. So, but looking back for Deanna and I, I go, what would have happened if we wouldn't have jumped in and served? 
And I can honestly say this, I don't think I would even be here today if that would have been the case. See, I needed the body of Christ. Deanna needed the body of Christ. They ministered to us as we tried to serve them. The body of Christ needs hands and toes and feet and elbows and ears to have good corporate discipleship. Now, in your bulletins, I want you to pull something out. There's a little brochure, there's a little booklet in there. And what we did is that we went through and we just wrote down places that you can serve the body of Christ. There's all different kinds of there. And I would ask that you would begin to pray about this and just think about it even right now. Now, I have to say one thing as you page through this and look at this. Some of the needs in here are more critical than others. We, we have to admit that. Okay, I think we just got to say that up front. For example, one of the things that we really need this year is a nursery on Wednesday nights. We need a couple sets of hands to help watch kids in the nursery. And what does it do? It frees up other people to be deeply involved in the corporate discipleship process. It helps other people in other ways and it multiplies the effect of disciple making. One of the other things we're doing, we're trying to start a almost like a confirmation class for 6th and 7th graders this year. And we need a couple teachers probably to share that teaching of going through some basic doctrine, trying to, to create a foundation of that in, in people's lives. See, we need to serve. Uh, there, there's a table, by the way, if you came in the entryway, there's some balloons at a table and uh, Steve, and I think Sarah's going to be here after a bit, but would you talk to them and just say, what's the greatest needs that we have? Sarah has lots of needs for Kids Rock. She's heading that up this, this coming fall. Would you talk to her? But I'd invite you to pray over this and go, okay, I'm a foot, I'm a knee. We need to do this. We need to serve. But let me give you some realities of serving just to kind of close this off. The first one, this serving the body of Christ is really convenient. But if it was all about convenience, it really is not serving the body of Christ. Okay? Convenience is the opposite of discipleship. Serving the body of Christ takes time and energy. That's true. That's very true. But look at, let me focus on the third one. Serving the body of Christ might bring unexpected results. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, sometimes when we serve, we often serve in ways that aren't a perfect fit for us. At least that's what we think. Okay? Oftentimes, though, I would challenge you this. We don't know the outcome of what God wants to do in us just serving in some area. Some of you don't know all of the pieces to my story, but Deanna and I ended up back in Brainerd area in 91. We, we came back for, to Minnesota because we wanted to help my mom and my dad. My dad had Alzheimer's uh, pretty severe at that time, so we ended up moving up to the area in Brainerd. I didn't even have a job. Deanna had a nursing job at the time. And 
we visited a whole bunch of churches in the Brainerd area, and we ended up settling on Lakewood Free Church down there in Baxter. And we just went to them and because we wanted to be part of a church, and we just kind of sat down and said, okay, where can we serve? And it was, this was kind of late in the summer, and they go, have we got a deal for you? We have an eighth grade Sunday school class, and they can't find a teacher. And, and the reason was, is that it was a class that was kind of labeled the class from hell. Um, that was kind of, no one wanted to teach the class. And it was a group of students that they had lots of energy. They were over-the-top energy. Many of them came from some broken homes. They were smart and often too smart. Um, and, and guess what? Now, now, understand for myself, I loved high school and college. That's where my passion was at. That's where I had served the most in the past. But something happened is that we actually fell in love with these kids that we really didn't like at first. And seven months later, they approached me and said, Ken, would you be willing to be our first youth pastor? God used that experience for me to move to full-time ministry as he was pulling me that direction. But the interesting piece, looking back, in that class, that eighth grade class, almost exactly 10 years later, we invited Jenny Schmidt, who was one of the ringleaders in that class, to be a children's ministry director full-time at the church. God transformed her life, and she ended up serving the body of Christ in a unique way. See, corporate disciple-making works when people serve. It may not always fit you yet. But God could change that. And sometimes serving frees somebody else up like a nursery to serve fully, and it's making a difference in other people's lives. So we have these needs. And there's lots of needs one of the commitments that we really are shooting for is like we, we need both ministry programs on Wednesday night to start. We, need, we don't want to be start one youth ministry and not start another. That's not fair because what people tend to do is kind of forget about it. So we ask that you would consider, pray. Talk to Steve, the table out there. There's some caramel corn and pretzels that will compete against the other goodies that are there. Um, but talk to them. And, and maybe God is prompting you even right now, go, what can I do? Could you open your hands and just say, God, I want to be used. But test God because you know what? You're going to find that he's going to change you in that process. Let me close with putting back 1 Corinthians 12 again on the screen. How strange a body would it be if we only had one part? He creates us different for different things. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body, the purpose, we, our identity, is in Christ together. We are the body of Christ in this community. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. And if you didn't have a hand, you could look at something and want something, but if you have no hand to get it, we're in trouble. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. The head stays in the same position if there's no feet. 
In fact, some parts of the body that seem the weakest, I love this verse, and the least important are actually the most important. Do you catch at times how we elevate if I teach or if I'm on the pulpit, it's the most important? I go, no. You know, Barb, we provide a nursery on Sunday morning and Barb serves it so faithfully because if we didn't have that, we probably wouldn't have a church. (laughs) Do we recognize that? See, God is calling us to be used in corporate discipleship, individual discipleship. You know, one of my wishes so we'd have people coming forward and we're going, oh, this ministry's filled. Could you try this one? <laughs> Wouldn't that be a cool place to be at as a church? Not trying to beg people. But I believe that God has created you for a purpose. And you need to jump in and serve somewhere to test. Don't assume I don't like little kids. I don't like junior high. Because you might just fall in love and might make a difference where it propels them into full-time ministry someday and be used by God. Let's stand and pray.